Isaiah 7. And if you want to mark that, we will spend most of our time here, but first start in Matthew chapter 1. Isaiah 7. And then Matthew chapter 1, where we will begin. Picture in your mind a newly married husband who awakes from sleep on Christmas Day. He climbs out of bed to find his young wife in her robe and slippers making coffee in the kitchen. And our rookie husband wraps his arm around her and delivers a speech he's practiced for the last couple of days. He says this, Honey, I did not get you a Christmas gift. I decided that being your loving and loyal husband is gift enough. With my presence in your life, you have no need of presence under the tree. Well, chances are pretty good that little speech isn't going to end so well for him, is it? <laughs> this boy's going to figure out soon enough he's in a bit of trouble. But there is, isn't there, a vein of truth in what he's saying? A vein. Change the scene a little bit. This same young married woman, though not too thrilled with what has taken place in this scenario, imagine that she gets up and she finds under the tree a beautifully wrapped, expensive gift. She unwraps that gift and is thrilled with the gift that her husband has given her, but finds a card there that says that he has left her. Suddenly the gift is worthless. Apart from her husband's loyal presence, it means nothing. I'd like us to picture that for a moment and just get a sense of where that woman would be should her husband abandon her. And in a far more profound and purer sense, may we understand that the all-important gift from God is Himself. It is His presence with us. And without that presence, no gift has any value whatsoever. All important to us is the presence of God with us. And to our great delight, the pages of Scripture record the recurring promise of God's presence with His people. We've talked about this in the past several weeks as we've looked at the tabernacle and the presence of God with us there. But we go back to the very early pages of Scripture in the Garden of Eden. It is that Adam and Eve walked with God. That is the great gift. That is the all-important point of the Garden of Eden. Not just a gift of delight in and of itself, but a place of delight where God met with man. We move from the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle itself, and we've noticed through the past few weeks this continuing emphasis on the fact that it is here that God will meet with His people. And then we come, as we consider today, to the quintessential expression of God's presence with His people, and that is His Son, Emmanuel, God with us. 
We find this in Matthew chapter 1, the emphasis here, beginning at verse 18. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we read these familiar words again. But I'd like us to consider this theme of God with us and the importance of Christ's birth in bringing this point to us. Now, verse 18 of Matthew 1, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, notice the phrase, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. How does he divorce her and take her as his wife? In the betrothal period, they had not lived together, but were indeed married. Only a divorce could separate them, yet they were not together as husband and wife. And so the angel says, do not fear to take her as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name God with us. Matthew's gospel repeatedly demonstrates that the life of Jesus is in fact a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. If you'll just look at the page of scripture here briefly, you'll see this popping up throughout chapter 1 verses 22 and 23. The Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold the virgin shall conceive, Isaiah chapter 7. In chapter 2 of Matthew verses 5 and 6, we notice at the end of verse 5, written by the prophet, and there he quotes the prophet Micah in verse 6. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15 at the end of the verse, spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Probably a reference there to the prophet Moses. In chapter 2 and verse 17 you see it again, spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 2 and verse 23, again at the end of the verse, spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene, probably a compilation of various prophetic themes. And then in chapter 3 and verse 3, spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus, in other words, Matthew's laboring to tell us, did not descend to earth in a vacuum. His followers did not simply christen him the Christ after his resurrection. The infant Christ was the long-anticipated, long-prophesied Messiah of Israel. And Matthew labors to prove this point. And what is the first prophecy to which he appeals? It is the seven-plus-century-old prophecy that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, that his name would be called Emmanuel, which means in the Hebrew, God with us. 
in this name, in this name God with us, confirmed as it is by the sign of virgin conception, is found a powerful message for God's people. And I'd like us to consider this message in light of its historical roots. We look at this prophecy, a virgin will conceive, and we probably view it in a particular light. It is a prophecy that is given to us to obviously identify Christ as virgin born. But there's much more here and there is a message that runs much deeper. In fact, we could even say, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son are angry words. Now that misses us, and it doesn't show up on a lot of Christmas cards, but there's much more to this statement than meets the eye. And I'd like us to go back and sit for a time in the ancient context where Isaiah the prophet brought this idea out. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. First of all, we need to stop and come back to that time as far as we can. Let's bridge the gap just very briefly. We have, first of all, consider in your mind King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God established his covenant with King David. God promised to seat a king on David's throne forever. Not continuously, but eternally. There would be a king on David's throne. This is God's promise to him. Let's go secondly then to consider the divided kingdom. After David's reign... And then his son Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. We remember much of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles dealing with these various kings from the two kingdoms. We have the northern kingdom called Israel, sometimes Jacob, sometimes Ephraim. Remember that name, Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, the largest and most prominent tribe its namesake. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, the house of David, the largest and most prominent tribe in that kingdom. And then the northern kingdom, showing this string of ungodly kings. The southern kingdom, ruled by David's house, some of the kings being godly, many of them not. But this southern kingdom of Judah is the dynasty of David. And it is then the kingdom that God has promised for there to be a ruler. Let's move then to Isaiah's day, which involves this divided kingdom, and consider the situation. If you can picture in your mind here, I'm going to start with number one, which is Judah, the southern kingdom. We have Judah, ruled by King Ahaz. What's the capital? Jerusalem. We go to number two, which is just north the northern kingdom of Israel, and we have there Ephraim, or the northern kingdom, with its capital at Samaria. We move further north yet, the third position, and that is the kingdom of Syria, with its capital at Damascus, and then we move north and east yet again to the great, massive political power, military power of Assyria, ruled by Tiglath-Pileser III. There's the setting. One, Judah. Two, Ephraim. Three, Syria, Damascus, the city. And four, Assyria, the greatest power of all. All of these nations then, above Judah, these two nations, are kind of stacked together in this narrow land bridge, 
So Assyria is in a sense isolated off to the north, though the greater power, and then there's Syria, and then there's the northern kingdom of Israel. That's the setting in which Isaiah is prophesying in the city of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. We come then to Isaiah chapter 7. If you still have your finger there, let's turn to Isaiah 7. In any event, turning back here, and we're going to just briefly run through these verses surrounding Isaiah 7.14 and this great prophecy of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. Chapter 7 and verse 1, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Isaiah 7, 1, For some time the kingdoms of Syria and Ephraim had desperately wanted Judah to join them against Assyria. Ahaz resisted this appeal at great cost to Judah, believing it politically expedient to purchase protection from Assyria. So he's going to go up to position four and ask them to come in and join him to beat up positions three and two, which are pressing on position one. The problem with Ahaz's plan, first of all, it's politically expedient, it makes a lot of sense. Assyria is a much greater power. Ahaz was very astute as he analyzed that and realized this was one powerful nation. The problem with his desire is it was not God's will. And secondly, the Syrian kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel were stacked between him and Ahaz's hero Tiglath-Pileser, and the Assyrians didn't get there. And so we come to verse 2. When the house of David, who's that? That's Ahaz, that's the southern kingdom. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. There's no airplane that's going to fly from Assyria here and help you out. No air force. Assyria stuck up above and is not going to get here in time, and Ahaz and the city of Jerusalem are in a heap of trouble. For Syria and Ephraim, these two kingdoms to the north, have teamed up together. We have here the translation, in league with one another, or literally at rest with one another. In other words, like swarming bees, they had stopped and come to rest, and were camping and camped together against Ahaz and the people of Judah. And so the throne of David is in great jeopardy. Assyria will not aid Judah, but God is willing to aid Judah. And this is the good news that is delivered to Ahaz the king. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and share Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Prior to the excavation of Hezekiah's tunnel, In Jerusalem, Israel's water supply is located above ground. That's a very vulnerable situation. And so the king is there protecting, apparently, the water source and overseeing the situation there. And Isaiah and his son go to meet him on the road leading to the ancient laundromat. And they're going to have a conversation right there, verse 4, and say to him, says God to Isaiah, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, Pekah. Don't be afraid of them because 
Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Right, that's the situation he's dealing with. Let's just take a break for a moment here. That's what he's dealing with, and God says, Don't be afraid. These two guys are nothing but smoldering sticks. They're just about to be extinguished. They want to seat their puppet, the son of Tabeel. He's not even considered important enough by Isaiah to name him. They want to set this man on the throne of David. But I have made a promise to David, and I don't want you to fear them at all. Do not fear these two men. God will shut them down. And so in verse 7 we read, The Lord God says, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. God had made this promise to David, and God would keep that promise. No son of Tabeel would ascend to David's throne. Verse 8, poetically, he goes on to say, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Syria, the nation, Damascus, the city, and Rezin, the king. Makes sense? Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. Now here's what we're to consider. If I can say this, A and B. We have A, the kingdom, Syria, Damascus, the capital, Rezin, the king, will fall. The parallel with that B is that Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, is going to fall as well. They're in league, they're both going to fall. Now we come back to a statement again at verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. Doing the same thing there. You understand, the kingdom Ephraim, the, the capital Samaria, the king Remaliah's son, that's going to fall. And what's the parallel now? Here it is at the end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Syria falls, so will Ephraim. Ephraim falls, so will you, unless you stand firm. What's it, what is he saying? It's a call for trust in God. A stern warning. Ahaz must trust God that these kingdoms are about to topple. God is with him and there is no need to lean on Assyria for help. Well, Ahaz apparently doesn't listen. And verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz again. And says to him, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. We get the situation. Ahaz is battling here and with his political advisors. He is saying in his mind, I've got to ally with Assyria. That's my only hope. I've got to go there for help. But here's this prophet Isaiah that keeps getting in my way and telling me to trust God and not to ally with Assyria. But he doesn't have to lead an army. He's not a king. He doesn't know anything. I've got these two kingdoms coming against me, and we're about to fall. And he keeps telling me to trust God, trust God, trust God. And Isaiah keeps putting him off, putting him off, putting him off, because he has designs to go with Assyria for help. God says these two kingdoms are to be ignored. They should be no fear to you. Ask me a sign. 
I will move, as one commentator puts it, I will move heaven and earth, God says. I don't care if it's in Sheol or in heavens above, wherever it is, I will give you a miraculous sign if you ask for that, or a prophetic sign, and I will assure you, yes, this will be the case. Now notice how Ahaz moves. Verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Well, that's biblical, isn't it? We know in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you're not supposed to put God to the test. In fact, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ quotes this very same passage. You're not to put God to the test. So this man's being biblical. This is a good king. He's using Bible verses and Bible principles. He's not going to put God to the test, even though Isaiah says that he can. But as pious as he may have wanted to sound, Ahaz fails to appreciate that he is actually now really testing God. This is, as one commentator puts it, a monumental piece of hypocrisy. There are situations in which outward piety and inward unbelief are identical. And this is one of those cases. Outward piety and inward unbelief all wrapped up into one package. Ahaz does not want to trust God. He wants to trust Assyria. And so he does not want a sign from God because he doesn't want to be bothered with God's ideas. He wants to be politically savvy. He knows he must trust Assyria. He has no interest in the vulnerable position of having to trust God to rely upon the promises of God's protective care. And so verse 13, he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Here's Isaiah's prophecy. You have tired out the prophets of God who have come to you over and over again to say, trust God, and now you go right to God himself and you weary him with your unbelief, pious though it may sound, your inherent unbelief. So in frustrated anger, may I use that word reverently, in frustrated anger, God lashes out at Ahaz in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want one? I'll give you one. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You don't want to believe that God is with you. He'll be with you. And here is the sign, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. In verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Ahaz could have asked for the sun to stand still. But despite his lack of imaginative faith, God still sends the sign of his son to Israel. This is a tough verse, verse 14. It takes a lot of work to work through, and there's many questions that remain as you work through it. Many of the issues of this verse have been debated for centuries and discussed, and I don't plan by any means to or pretend to give you the final answer. But let me just lay out what seems to be fairly clear for conservative Bible 
interpreters. That is this. The basic meaning is this. A young woman of marriageable age, an alama, indeed a virgin, as Matthew 1.23 makes clear, will become pregnant and bear a son, and she will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. By the time that son is old enough to eat curds, milk, and honey, and to distinguish right from wrong, Syria and Ephraim will be devastated by Assyria. That's the basic meaning. But don't jump with joy, Ahaz, verse 17 and following, because the Assyria that you believe you can trust in will come back to haunt you. And Assyria is going to put tremendous, tremendous pressure on Judah. But back to verse 14, which is of our particular interest here. Who is this virgin? It gets a little complicated here. There are those who say the virgin is Mary only, Jesus' mother. That is the prophecy. He is saying to Ahaz, a virgin will be born, and that virgin is not born for seven plus centuries. That's the sign to Israel that God is with them. There are others who say there's two references here. It is, of course, to the Virgin Mary. Matthew 1 makes that crystal clear. But that there is also a near reference. That is, someone in Isaiah and Ahaz's day, a virgin. But here, again, the Hebrew word alama, meaning simply a young, marriageable woman, is there in the kingdom. And this won't be then the queen. And I don't think it should be taken as Isaiah's wife, because Isaiah's wife is not a virgin. She is not a marriageable young woman. She's married. So that leaves some questions for us. But first of all, the problem with saying that it is only Jesus is verse 16. Notice verse 16. For before the boy who knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now that took place in just a few years after this prophecy. So it seems to definitely say that this son will be one who will be born and in just a very short period of time all of this mess is going to go away with Syria and Ephraim. But there's some problems with saying that it also refers to a woman in Isaiah's day. The first is we must assume that this virgin gets married and thus is not a virgin when she conceives. That rules out Isaiah's wife, it rules out the queen, and perhaps Alamah will leave room for this. And I think that's probably the way to take it. But secondly, this all-important sign child is never even identified then in the text of Isaiah, which is a little bit of a problem. If this child is so all-important for Ahaz to see that God's promise will come true, why do we not even know who the son is? Not even identified in the text. There's some problems here, and here's where I revert to perhaps wisely the words of E.J. Young, who admonishes us that prophecy, I quote, is not simple history written in advance, but is language of profound and beautiful symbolism clothed in an aura of mystery. And there's quite an aura of mystery here. Who is this child in the immediate context? But leaving all that behind, just to give you the sense that this is something of a complicated matter, what we do know in light of Isaiah 7 and Matthew chapter 1 is that the virgin birth of Jesus is a sign to God's people of his presence with them. And from there we can work. And I'd like to bring to our attention then with this context laid for us 
an understanding of Isaiah 7.14 that perhaps stretches beyond what we just typically understand. That yes, Mary would conceive a child. This was prophesied and it was evidence of the deity of Christ. That is certainly the case with Isaiah 7 and verse 14. But I think there is more there for us to gain. And so I think there is more for us when we see the picture of the infant Christ in the manger for us to consider than simply that he's virgin born and thus God with us. Let me say first of all that the virgin birth of Jesus is God's miraculous sign to us that he is sovereignly working in history to establish his rule on earth. And we catch this in many of our Christmas songs when we speak of the king child. The infant Christ who was born a king. It's really an ironic statement, a paradox of sorts. But we see this in the work that God is doing. He will be with us both now and forever. And the entire Bible lays out God's redemptive agenda to seat the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, upon the earthly throne of David. This is the agenda. It's an agenda that we must understand, we must perceive. Notice in chapter 8 and verse 8 of Isaiah, an interesting point comes out here. As he, again, speaking with an aura of mystery in all of these prophecies, he speaks at, right at the end of verse 8 of your land, O Emmanuel. That is that the promised land is Emmanuel's land. This one named God with us, this is his land Chapter 9 and verse 6, we learn more of this son. For to us a child is born. Chapter 9, verse 6. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The very zeal that moves the Lord Jesus Christ to speak of himself as the Son of God. We notice that this Son of God, this child that is born, is called the Everlasting Father. That there will be a government of unending peace over which he rules in justice and righteousness forevermore. At the first coming of Jesus, David's throne was in a shambles. There was nothing there. Rome ruled over Palestine. But at his second coming, this Son of God, this virgin-born one, and here's the sign that this is who he is, this virgin-born one will rule from Jerusalem's throne here on earth. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1, we have further prophecy of this very coming event. Isaiah 40 and verse 1. Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. That is the road prepared for the king to come. 
The uneven ground shall be made level and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Verse 9, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That is, the baby in Bethlehem's stable is the sign that in the great consummation, God will establish Jesus on David's earthly throne. God sets up kingdoms and God brings kingdoms down. And in all of it, like a great chess match, God is moving to set Jesus on David's throne. And all the powers of earth and hell combined cannot stop that agenda. Satan tried to crush this son by killing the babies of Bethlehem, but God hid his son in Egypt. Satan tried to eliminate this king through crucifixion, but God raised him from the dead. And today our Savior, our risen Savior, is not only out of reach of death, he sits on heaven's throne and has crushed death to death. And he will come again. The virgin-born Son of God will rule earth from David's throne. And the proof is an over 700-year prophecy fulfilled in the womb of a virgin maid from Nazareth. God has said not only to Ahaz, God has said to you and to me, here is the sign. This son will come, born of a virgin. This one will be God with us. And this one, Isaiah goes on to prophesy, will rule the nations. He will take David's throne. He will reign here. The virgin birth of Jesus is God's miraculous sign to us that he is sovereignly working in history to establish his rule on earth. We can know that God is about that agenda in the nations of the earth. We can have that peace and we can have that confidence and we can trust in this God who knows all and is working all to His glory and to the reign of Christ. Secondly, as we bring it a little closer to home, the virgin birth of Jesus is God's miraculous sign that we must trust Him alone to save us. That's precisely what the Son was in the Isaiah 7 context. And that is precisely then how we are to read the virgin birth and the baby in the manger. This is a sign to us that God alone can be trusted for salvation. That's the whole point of the sign. The virgin birth proves the presence of God with us. The virgin birth proves that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. His transcendent deity is seen there. It is God with us. But He is also God with us. His imminent presence with His people is made clear in the incarnation. And since God is with us, we need not and must not rely on anyone or anything else for our salvation. 
The sign of the virgin birth was meant to teach Ahaz that he must rely on God and not Assyria. Times are different for us. But very similarly, the sign of the virgin birth is intended to teach us that any other God or way of salvation from sin and sanctification is idolatrous and destructive. God designed the virgin birth to teach that He alone is our way of salvation. In light of the Isaiah context then, how should the virgin birth affect us? I think we're falling very short of this message that we find in Isaiah if we look at the manger and the baby in it and say, yes, God taking on flesh born of a virgin and stop there. And certainly, what we are to take from that is not, here is this beautiful, vulnerable little baby and feel all warm and cozy in our hearts. That might be fine in and of itself, but there's much more to it than that. What it says to me is what it was intended to say to Ahaz. I must live by faith in God's daily presence. And when it comes to that, this baby in the manger completely turns our world upside down. Because just like Ahaz, we have our savvy ways of depending on other things. We like to depend on our own wisdom, on our own purposes, on other people to bring about the joy that we want in our hearts. But the baby in the manger is a sign from God, and as I said at the start, is really, truly, in one sense, a sign from an angry God. Now, I think it's also a sign from a very loving and warm God, obviously, but the other side of it is also there. It is a word of anger against Ahaz and against all who would trust in their own ways and will not trust in the ways of God alone for our salvation, and for our sanctification. The virgin-born child is a direct call to us, a miraculous sign to us that we must live by faith in the saving power of God. This means that we must seek our salvation in no one else. It means that we must trust in God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, and difficulty, our task is to trust in the presence of God with us. In the midst of temptation, in all of our relationships, in finances, in health, in the future as we anticipate it, in all of this, God is with us. And there is a miraculous sign in this world to point us to this truth. It is that baby in that manger. It is that song of Elizabeth as the pregnant Mary comes to her. It is this sign, this virgin conception that tells us we can trust God in everything. In fact, we must trust Him in everything, whatever the circumstances. I mean, every one of us could really lay out a few problems we're dealing with, couldn't we? 
But stack this up against Ahaz. How many of us have two kingdoms joined together and camped in the backyard ready to assault our city and take no prisoners? This is a really scary situation. His day was really messed up when he found this out. And it looked absolutely hopeless. And God in this fallen world has designed it this way, has seen fit to lead us through all kinds of messes that seem absolutely hopeless. And one of our natural tendencies is to take those situations and say, why me? Why don't things happen in my life the way they happen so well in everybody else's life, it seems? But there is a baby in a manger that says to us, this is a sinful world. You're going to run into suffering and trials and temptations and difficulties and relationships and all kinds of problems in this life. In all of them, you must trust God alone and walk in faith that He is with you. If there's any connection by the Spirit of God in your heart, you begin to see this challenge of faith is not all that easy, is it? It's a real struggle for us. When we say we must trust God in all things, everyone who is a genuine believer shakes their head and says, obviously. But when it comes right down to it, we begin to find all other Assyrias to trust in. And God says to us in this child in the manger, don't do it. Trust my promise. Rest in my presence and move forward because I am doing something in your life which is part of the greater agenda that I am bringing about in this world. One day Jesus will rule on this earth and peace will never end. Trust me. Walk with me. I'm there. If you have not put your personal trust in Christ alone as your Savior, you must do this. So that this virgin-born child is not to you a curse, but a blessing. We look at this child and say he is a blessing, and certainly he is, and above all that is the case. But we must also realize that those who do not rest in Him, in His death to pay the penalty of sin, and in His resurrection victory over sin, all who do not rest in that, He will come back as judge. And He will meet you in eternity as judge. This God with us is a God of love and grace and a God of judgment. So if you are not on his side, turn your back on Assyria and come into the presence of God through Christ. Receive him as God's great gift of himself through faith in the salvation that he provides. For those of us who have come to that saving faith and know Christ as our personal Savior, This baby in the manger is a miraculous sign saying, God is with you. He is with you. 
Trust Him alone. Not only for your salvation, trust Him alone for everything else. For your sanctification as He does that work, trust Him alone. It speaks to us of daily communion and of sanctifying grace. This baby in the manger says a lot more than meets the eye. It is God's miraculous sign to us. And may we receive Him as that sign and live by faith in God alone. May that be our challenge and our call on this Christmas Eve day. Let's stand together and look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we need You. We need Your presence. And how we thank You, Father, that You do not merely shower down upon us external blessing, but that there is from Your throne a presence with us in the indwelling Spirit, in the indwelling Christ. For those of us who are Your people, we praise You, we worship You, we thank You, and we honor You for that presence. Help us, Father, I pray, to trust, to learn to walk in faith in all circumstances, to not look to rescuers from outside. But I pray, God, that we would look to you alone as our salvation. If there's anyone among us here that has not come to do that in the manner of salvation, I ask that you'll draw them to saving faith in Christ today that they would place their simple faith in Him. For those of us who know You, thank You. Thank You for Your presence. Thank You for the incarnate Son who witnesses to Your sovereign power and reigning program and who witnesses to Your continued presence with Your people. May we trust You and walk from this place as people of faith. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.